Well, if you have your Bibles again, I invite you to turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1046. If you're a guest with us, we've been working through this section in Matthew's Gospel. We come again to a passage that we began last week in Matthew chapter 18. And we'll begin reading in verse 15. I'm going to speak for a few minutes again this morning on this subject, Embrace the Awkward. Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. And this is what the Word of God says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. I mentioned to you last week that as I was studying this passage of Scripture, it brought to mind the phrase that I coined in parenting our teenagers, that in our home and in our family, we embrace the awkward. And this is what Jesus is teaching us as a church regarding the subject of church discipline. That as Christians and as a church in the 21st century, we should embrace the awkward subject of church discipline. To the world and to many modern Christians, church discipline is viewed as legalistic, it is viewed as unloving, and it is strongly rejected. But the Bible views church discipline as essential for the health and the well-being of God's people and God's church. The context in properly understanding Jesus' instructions in this passage that we've read is the entire chapter of Matthew chapter 18 where he is dealing with the subject of little ones, God's people who are a part of his family, and in particular verses 10 to 14 that we looked at a few weeks ago when Jesus gave us the parable of the lost sheep. And in that parable, Jesus taught us that God the Father's love and concern for sinners is a picture of a shepherd's concern for the wandering sheep. That the shepherd would leave the 99 who are safe and well-fed and protected, and he will go in search of the one who has run away. And it is out of that picture, and it is out of that context, that we come to the instructions in verses 15 to 20 from Jesus concerning church discipline and how the church should rescue those in its flock who have fled and moved away from Christ and his church and how the church should properly and biblically resolve conflict among its people. And so Jesus is essentially teaching us that as a church, we need to embrace the awkward, that we need to be a people who is willing to embrace the awkward and lead God's people to a place of health and well-being. And Jesus gives us this passage of Scripture as a guide in embracing the awkward subject of church discipline. If you'll recall from last week, I mentioned to you the purpose of church discipline, which was found in verse 15, that Jesus tells us the reason why we are to practice church discipline 
is so that we will gain our brother or sister in Christ who has wandered away from the fold. And then we began to look at the process of church discipline in verses 15 to 17. And we got all the way through verse 15, and we looked at what Jesus teaches us about the first step of church discipline, having a private conversation. And so now this morning, I'm going to pick up with step number two in verse 16. And Jesus tells us in this verse that we are to establish evidence. Look carefully at verse 16. Jesus says, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And Jesus tells us in this verse that if a brother or sister does not listen, we are to take one or two others along with us. Now you'll notice carefully in the verse that in this second step of church discipline, the extent of those involved is still relatively small. Just one or two others along with you. And the purpose of involving others in this second step is not to intimidate or overpower your brother or sister in Christ. The purpose is to get the attention of your brother or sister in Christ so that they will listen to you and you will gain back your brother or your sister. This second step and the addition of a small number of people in the process emphasizes the seriousness of the situation. And it communicates that the attempt to rescue or reconcile is taking on a more official and serious tone. Now at this point in the process, a church leader does not need to be involved, though they could serve as one of the witnesses that Jesus is talking about in verse 16. It is probably best in step number two to involve someone else who knows the person, who has a relationship with them, who cares for them. So they have a vested interest in helping rescue and bring reconciliation. It is important to note that these one or two other witnesses should be believers. They should be impartial. They should be mature. They should be gentle. They should be humble. They should be patient, compassionate, kind, loving, doctrinally sound, willing to go with you to speak to an unrepentant brother or sister. It shouldn't just be anyone. Thought and consideration should be given in this step. Now notice carefully at the text in verse 16. And by the way, this is probably going to feel less like a sermon and more like teaching. It's the nature of the text. This second step is to take place, look carefully in verse 16, so that every charge may be established by the evidence of one or two witnesses. And Jesus is saying if step one doesn't work, you move to step number two. And the reason that you move to step number two is because you're going to establish evidence. And that evidence is going to be established based on the one or two witnesses that are now involved in this process. And you say, well, what in the world is Jesus talking about in verse 16? Well, he's actually citing an Old Testament requirement from the book of Deuteronomy in the use of one or two witnesses to establish facts in a dispute or in an allegation of wrongdoing. And all of the disciples would have been familiar with this requirement that Jesus is reaching back to in the book of Deuteronomy. 
And it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15. And this is what that verse says. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And so Deuteronomy 19.15 and Jesus' words here in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 16 teach us that to guard against false accusations, slander, and spiteful accusations of sin or a crime or another offense that was not committed, Moses required one or two witnesses. And Jesus says that when you're dealing with the second step of church discipline and you are trying to bring repentance and reconciliation, there needs to be an establishing of evidence by one or two witnesses. It's the same principle that the Apostle Paul gave Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, when he was instructing Timothy about dealing with all the problems and the false teachers in the church at Ephesus. And he says in verses 19 and 20 of 1 Timothy chapter 5, that you are not to admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. It's the principle of establishing evidence. And so in the context of Jesus' instructions in this verse, the witnesses serve to establish the evidence that indeed a sin has been committed, that a brother or sister has been confronted, like verse 15 says they should be, and that a refusal to repent or reconcile has taken place. That is the purpose of step number two, to establish that step number one indeed has been followed and there has been no resolution. And now with step number two, evidence is established. And not just evidence is established, but these two or three other witnesses that go with you, they also are calling this brother or sister to repentance and to reconciliation. Or they are telling you, you are wrong in your estimation of this situation that is taking place. And God uses them in this second step to establish the evidence. And just like the first step, the primary purpose of this step remains the same. Involve as few people as possible, bring the wandering brother or sister back into the flock and resolve the conflict and reconcile relationships and bring repentance. And so we have a private conversation in step one. In step two, we establish the evidence. Now it gets more difficult. In step three, we have congregational involvement. Look at the first half of verse 17. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now notice what is taking place in verse 17. The erring brother or sister refuses to listen to the other witnesses of verse 16. And as a result, in step number three, Jesus says that you are now to tell the sin and the problem to the church. When step one fails and step two fails and you move to step three, the situation has become far more serious. The sin and the stubbornness of the erring one now affects the testimony of the entire church. And the word church that Jesus uses here, let me define the parameters of it for you. He is not referring to a committee in the church. 
He is not referring to a board in the church. He is not referring to a group of leaders in the church. Jesus is referring to the entire church body, the entire congregation. And with this third step, the circle of involvement in church discipline grows to include all of the believers in a local church as they are made aware of their brother or sister's sin and lack of repentance. It means that if the elders of the church have not already been involved in the process in step number two, the elders are informed in step number three, and because they have the charge from the Lord of overseeing and watching over the flock, the elders then are responsible to come before the church and make the entire congregation aware. Now listen carefully to my next words, church. In this step, the elders must clearly instruct the church to pursue their brother or sister in Christ aggressively challenging the church to plead with that brother or sister to repent and to return before the fourth step in the process takes place so to be clear there is a responsibility from the elders of the church to clearly instruct the church body in how they are to respond to this situation. And listen to me, church. There is clear weight and responsibility on the church body as a whole to get involved and go after this erring brother or sister. And it's at this step, in my experience, where church discipline usually falls apart. The church says, this is not my problem. The church says, how dare the elders air dirty laundry like that? What are they thinking? What are they doing? Out of sight, out of mind. And Jesus is actually teaching us the opposite. That the attitude of out of sight, out of mind, don't get involved is the most unloving thing a church could do. That the point of step number three is not embarrassment. The point of step number three is not of trying to single somebody out and shame them. The point of step number three is a loving action on the part of the church and its leaders to go after one who is in grave danger. And that is the tone that is behind Jesus' words in this verse. Let me translate it for you this way, so maybe it'll be more helpful to you. When the church obeys step number three, the church is saying to that brother or sister in Christ, we love you and we want you to come back to Christ and we want you to come back to your church family. And when the church does not obey step number three, do you know what the church is saying? We could care less about you. Go ahead and do your own thing. Now notice, again, I can't emphasize this enough because this step is so misunderstood, so rejected. And I'm trying to challenge you through the word of God, not through my opinion, not through my, my thoughts, my words, through the very words of Jesus. This is the entire church's responsibility. You cannot escape that one commentator said about step number three God loves us so much that if we are caught in sin 
he will send an army of believers to us as a demonstration of his love and his mercy. By the way, friends, let me just say this about step three and I'll move on and make you even more uncomfortable. This is why church membership matters. This is why it matters to be a part of a local church. It's why it matters not to just be a part of a local church and have your name on a roll somewhere as if you think that is what gets you into heaven. It's a part of a local church where you say, I can be counted on to get involved in something like this. It's where you are saying, I pray that if I wonder like this person does, that the whole church would come after me. That's the point. It's not a club. It's a membership. It's a family. It's a body that cares for one another. That's the church. Step four. It's harder now. I want you to keep your Bible open so you can't say at the end of this that the pastor made stuff up. Removal from the membership. Look at the end of verse 17. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. I'm going to point out several words to you in this verse that are important. Here's the first one. It's the word even. This word is significant. I want you to feel the weight and the progression of the text and what Jesus is saying with this word even. This erring brother and sister who were engaging and were trying to rescue has refused to listen to step one in the private conversation. They have refused to listen to step two and the two or three other witnesses who have come with you to rescue them. They have refused to listen to step three when the whole church collectively has gotten involved and has gone after them and pursued them and begged them and pleaded with them to repent and to return and to come back. They have refused to listen to everything that has been done in step one, two, and three. They have become hardened. And these attempts have no effect on them. And look at what the text says that Jesus says that you are to do. If they refuse to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The phrase, let him be, is an imperative. It's a command. Jesus is commanding that the church view this person as a Gentile or a tax collector. What's he talking about? Well, Gentiles and tax collectors in Jesus' day were viewed as being seen outside of the covenant people of God. That they didn't belong. They were outsiders. The Gentiles were viewed as being outsiders by birth. And the tax collectors were so disdained by the people of the day that they were viewed as being outside of the fold of God by choice. And Jesus is saying that a person who claims to be a Christian and they've refused step one, they've refused step two, they've refused step three, and they continue to persist in their unrepentant sin, they must now be viewed by the church, listen carefully, As an unbeliever. They are outside of the family of God. Now let me be clear. Jesus is not saying to be rude to them. Jesus is not saying to treat them with contempt. Jesus is saying that the church should no longer regard this person as a true Christian. That instead of viewing them as someone who should receive the shepherding and the pastoral care of the church, 
they should now be viewed as someone who needs to be evangelized by the church. That they are not believers. That they shouldn't gain benefit from the blessings of the fellowship of the church. But that whenever the church encounters them, the church should always plead with them to repent and to come to Christ. Now listen, the purpose of step number four is to awaken this person to their condition before God and to restore them. There is no doubt that step number four is the most difficult step of the process. But I'll remind all of us this morning that this is a command from Jesus, and it is not an option. That this is what Jesus tells his church to do. And can I just help you with something? Do not expect the world to understand this. They have no category for what we are talking about this morning. You say, Pastor, I'm I'm really struggling with this. I, I feel your struggle. I see your struggle. You're wrestling with the Bible this morning. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. Did you know that this process was practiced in the Corinthian church? Did you know that? That in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the apostle Paul told the church that there was unrepentant sin by a man in the church who was, and the sin was public, and Paul told the church that they were to remove the man from the church. Did you know that your Bible has that account in it? In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul tells them, and by the way, you'll hear it in a moment when I read it to you, but do you know what he says to the church? He says, you have become so arrogant, church, that you know that this public sin is going on in your midst and you're tolerating it and you're ignoring it and you're acting like it is okay. And Paul says to them that that's the height of pride and arrogance. And he tells them to remove the man. Listen, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Do you hear that? Paul says you are so arrogant, you've ignored it, and what you really need to do is mourn over your actions and remove him from the midst. And Paul goes on in this passage, in verses 5 and 6, and he describes this man's sin as leaven, and that it is going to infiltrate the whole church, and it is going to spoil the entire body of believers. Which, by the way, is why Jesus teaches us to practice church discipline. And so he says in verses 5 and 6 of 1 Corinthians 5, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And What Paul is teaching in verses 5 and 6 of 1 Corinthians 5 is that when the church has done everything that it could possibly do, step one, step two, step three, the church has no other measure left than step number four. And they are to act on step number four to prayerfully, hopefully, awaken this brother or sister to their need for Christ. And if they are not true believers, they will continue to go down and down and down into their sin. And they will continue to experience the consequences and the devastation and the destruction of their sin. And friends, if they are truly a believer and the church takes this action, 
God will use it to bring them to repentance and bring them back. If you are a true believer in Christ, you cannot lose your salvation. And so Paul tells the Corinthian church the same thing that Jesus is telling us. That this is good for the individual that is in sin. It is good for the purity and the protection of the entire body of Christ. It is good for the reputation of the church in the world. And it is for the glory of God in his church. Step number four, remove them and continue to call them back to repentance and reconciliation. And notice how Jesus frames step number four. Only the church can do this. This is the church's responsibility to do this action. Now you say, Pastor, this is hard. It is hard. It is hard. But it's important. And it can't be ignored. And so I want to give you three minder, reminders by way of application in thinking through this four-step process of church discipline. And, and here's the first reminder. Church discipline is always about salvation. It is always about salvation. When a person is confronted with their sin, how they respond to their sin is evidence of their salvation. Let me give you an example. So I was speaking to someone in step one about their sin. And in that conversation, I brought them to the gospel and asked them just very simply and directly, are you a Christian? Are you a believer? Because we both agree that what you're doing is sin and it's wrong. And do you know what this person said to me? Listen carefully to the response. Because the response is why you practice this process. Listen to the response. I thought I was until I started talking to you about this. That's the point. That's the point. To deal with matters of the heart. And I say to you this morning, which is more unloving to confront someone in gentleness and love, reminding them that what they're doing is wrong and that there's consequences for it? And are you sure you're really right with God or to ignore it and say it's none of your business and let them continue wandering towards destruction? It's always about salvation. And let me just insert this parenthetically this morning for the good of the cause so that we're all on the same page in this room. Jesus says that if you're one of his children and you sin against him and against his word, he will discipline you just like an earthly father disciplines his children. And if you never experience discipline from the Lord, do you know what Jesus says? You're not one of his. You're not one of his. And so if you think this morning that you can just like live in rebellion and unrepentant sin and there's no consequences and you're good with God and you feel like everything's going great in the midst of your sin, can I just remind you what the word of God says to you this morning? You're probably not one of his. And you need to repent and come to Christ. If you have that kind of view of sin. Second reminder. You will notice what's absent from this process. No time frame. How long do I wait from step one to step two to step three to step four? Did you notice that was absent? Why, pastor? Because... Church discipline is about the heart and the soul. And you don't just check off boxes. Well, I did step one. They didn't do it. Tomorrow's step two. And the next day, step three. The next day, step four. Is that really 
how you deal with heart and soul matters? No, there's no time frame. Do you know what determines the time frame? The posture of the heart. Are they in rebellion? Are they full of anger? Are they confrontational? Are they telling all of their friends who are then calling the church, threatening lawsuits and all other kinds of action? Oh yeah, that's happened. That's happened. We say, well, what do you do with that, Pastor? Well, that tells you everything you need to know about where their heart is. They're doubling down. They're tripling down. They're proud of their rebellion and disobedience against God. So how should you respond? Move to the next step. Because the purpose of the steps is to confront the heart. These are heart matters, friends. Do you know, I'm just trying to give you practical examples to help you get your mind around it this morning. And none of you have any idea of who I'm talking about. So just quit trying to figure it out. No idea. You'll never guess. That the shepherds of this church have moved through these steps year and a half, two years at a time because of the posture of the heart of the person they're dealing with. There's no time frame. So you deal with the heart. Now that's the process. Everybody okay? You really don't look okay. So the final word will help you. There are promises regarding church discipline. Verses 18, 19, and 20. Friends, this is the encouraging part. Let me tell you what's happening in verses 18 and 19 and 20. Jesus is promising his disciples and he's promising us that if we will obey verses 15, 16, and 17, we can be assured that we will have what he says in verses 18, 19, and 20. It's a direct correlation. Now, I want to warn you that verses 18, 19, and 20 are some of the most abused verses in all of God's word. And people use them to try to make them say things that Jesus is not saying. And I'm going to point it out to you as we go. So what is the first promise? Verse 18, authority. Jesus says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Whenever you see the phrase, truly I say to you from Jesus, you know something significant is coming after it. He is emphasizing what he is about to say. And he says in verse 18 that whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is very similar to what Jesus told Peter back in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 19. And if you recall when we studied that passage, I said to you, it's not that Peter or the disciples can command things from Jesus and then Jesus has to obey them. It's actually quite the opposite. That what Jesus is saying in verse 18 is that when you obey verses 15, 16, and 17, and you follow this process, whatever the church decides in step number four will be bound or loosed in heaven. And what Jesus is meaning is the church if it obeys what Jesus says in verses 15, 16, and 17, they're doing what Jesus said to do, and Jesus honors that. Jesus has already decided what should be done. That's why he gave verses 15, 16, and 17. So that the church can say in this process, if you'll repent of your sin and reconcile, God will forgive you. And Jesus says, that's right, I will forgive them if they do that. And the church can also say to this person, if you refuse to repent and we need to remove you from the church, you should take that as a strong warning that you may not be a Christian. And why does the church say that? Because Jesus said that. You see. 
It's not us telling Jesus how to handle it. It's Jesus saying, you have my authority to do step one, step two, step three, step four, because I've told you how to do it. So you see, you're in all kinds of trouble this morning. You don't like steps one, two, three, and four. And by the way, I don't like them either. Like if you like those steps, we really need to talk because something is probably wrong with you, right? We don't like steps one, two, three, and four, but we should be thankful for them because they're for the good of our soul and our well-being. And we know that they're a command from Jesus. And now we've just been told we've got the authority to do it. So now we're really in trouble, right? So we have the authority, verse 19. We have the promise of prayer. And Jesus says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And Jesus assures us that God the Father is with us when we do steps one, two, three, and four. You'll notice the phrase in verse 19, if two of you agree on earth. This is referring back to verse 16. Can you see it? Do you see the connection? Two or three witnesses. And what does Jesus say in verse 19? If two of you agree on earth. That's what he's talking about. If you agree in step two, the Father is with you. The word agree literally is where we get our English word symphony. You are in harmony and symphony and unity with the Father, when two or more of you agree in verse 16 about anything that you ask, he says in verse 19. Now, listen, the context always rules. Does this mean that if we're in a small worship gathering, somebody can stand up and say, well, the Bible says that if there's only two or three the Lord's presence is with us. Is that what he's talking about? Or somebody can say, if the Bible says, if, if I can just convince you to agree with me what I'm asking for God, God has to give it to me. Is that what it's saying? No. Friends, if there is only one person in your quiet time, just you, worshiping God, guess who's with you? God. Because he never leaves you. He never forsakes you. That's not what this verse is talking about. The context of this verse is the process of church discipline. And that if two or more of you will agree in these steps that what is happening is really happening. And you pray and you ask. Your heavenly father will be with you in this process that when you're praying for your brother or sister, when you're working through this process of church discipline, God will not abandon you. He will be with you. He will hear your prayers. He will move in your midst. You have the promise that God will hear and be in tune with your prayers for your brother or sister in Christ. Can you see that? You pray. God hears. So we have his authority. We have the assurance that he'll hear our prayers. In verse number 20, we're promised his presence. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Notice verse 19, Jesus promised the Father would be with us. Verse number 20, Jesus promised he himself would be with us. Jesus' statement in this verse is in the context of his instructions regarding church discipline. The two or three gathered in his name are the witnesses in the process of church discipline. And Jesus is saying that when we do the hard work of gentle, loving confrontation in the process of church discipline, where two or three believers are gathered together to address a brother or sister in sin, Jesus is present. 
that Jesus is actually using the process of church discipline to leave the 99 and rescue the one. That he is working through you and me in our faithful shepherding of one another and the elders' faithful shepherding of the flock. He's using all of that to reach those who have gone astray. We have his presence. We've been given the authority to do it. The Father will hear our prayers in the midst of it. And Jesus promises to be involved as well. And this should give us confidence to obey. Now, I'm going to try to wrap everything up. I'm going to read you a statement from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a famous pastor in World War II, and he wrote a book about community and fellowship in the church called Life Together. And in that book, he talks about the instructions of dealing with sin in the church, what we've been studying here. And I want you to listen to how powerfully he describes what happens when a church obeys these verses. He says, sin demands to have a man by himself. By the way, that's true. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. And this can happen even in the midst of a pious community. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. The sin must be brought into the light. The unexpressed must be openly spoken and acknowledged. All that is secret and hidden is made manifest. It is a hard struggle until the sin is openly admitted. But God breaks gates of brass and bars of iron. If you've lost it, he's warning of the dangers of sin isolating a person in the church. And that's exactly what sin does. It gets you to feel like nobody can understand you. Everybody will look down upon you. Everybody will disregard you. You have no recourse but to stay in your sin and keep it private and stay away from other people so that they don't find out. That's what he's saying. He goes on. Since the confession of sin is made in the presence of a Christian brother, the last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. The sinner surrenders. He gives up all of his evil. He gives his heart to God and he finds the forgiveness of all of his sin in the fellowship of Jesus Christ and his brother. The expressed Acknowledged sin has lost all its power. It has been revealed and judged it is sin. It can no longer tear the fellowship asunder. Now the fellowship bears the sin of the brother. Do you hear that, church? The fellowship bears the sin of the brother or the sister. They're no longer isolated. They're no longer alone. They got a family. And he is no longer alone with his evil, for he has cast off his sin from him. And now he stands in the fellowship of sinners who live by the grace of God and the cross of Jesus Christ. And the sin concealed separated him from the fellowship, made all his apparent fellowship a sham. And the sin confessed has helped him define true fellowship with his brothers and in Jesus Christ. Christ you're free that's why you do it because if you were isolated like that you would want somebody to do it for you you would want somebody to confront you about how you're disregarding your wife and your children So what do we do? To the unbeliever today, 
God's demonstrated his love to you through the cross. We've displayed it for you in the receiving of the elements of communion. You've heard a picture of it in this passage of scripture where God loves one individual so much he is willing to leave the 99 and go and rescue them. And God has given you a rescue, unbeliever, for your sins through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, listen, there, there is no way if you come in this place week after week after week that you can leave not knowing that you need Christ. Why don't you turn to him today and quit hardening your heart toward Jesus, to the backslidden believer, you who are in this place today and you say, I'm a Christian pastor. I'm just not an obedient one right now. I'm, I'm in a mess. I've gotten off track. I'm, I'm walking foolishly. I'm not walking in wisdom to you. To you I am talking to this morning. Don't you think it's time to come home before it gets worse? And to the believer who's walking with God this morning, what do you do with this passage? You can no longer ignore it. You, you cannot say that you've never been taught it. You're not going to be able to stand before Jesus one day and say, I didn't know that was in the Bible. Now you know. Now you know. Are you going to be the means of grace that God would use to rescue his people? Or are you going to reject truth? Well, I've written a couple words, and I promise this is the final conclusion. My professors would be very disappointed in me this morning. Church, don't you want to be a part of a church family where every member seeks the lost? Where every member seeks reconciliation with those who've sinned against them? And where the earthly shepherds assist with the most difficult aspects of the process of reconciliation, all the while knowing the Lord of the church is present working through his people. Don't you want to be a part of a church family where the spiritual health of every believer, the purity of the church before a watching world, and the glory of God reign in his church? Don't you want to be a part of a church family where the healing grace, the healing mercy, and the healing love of Christ saturates every single relationship in the church? You know, the same grace, the same mercy, and the same love that you say you've experienced through Jesus Christ? Don't you want that to be the reality in every relationship in the church? Don't you want to be a part of a church family in the midst of this world that we're living in that is willing to embrace the awkward? Let's pray.